0: Black holes are among the simplest objects in the universe. They are simpler than stars, much simpler than planets, and vastly simpler than human beings. Black holes are what is created when matter is compressed into a very, very small place. They are general relativity's most extreme prediction. They are commonly created from the violent deaths of stars many times the size of our sun usually forming from the collapsed core of a supergiant star after it explodes. And since Einstein's time, we have learned a lot about these very bizarre, very strange objects. So let's take a guided tour of black holes in this episode of Space Junk Podcast. You're listening to Space Junk Podcast. Hey, everybody, welcome back to another episode. My name is Tony Darnell. A little bit later, Dustin and I are going to be talking about autoguiders. But before I do all of that, let's talk about black holes. Now, I usually get a lot of flack when I say something like black holes are actually very simple objects. And from a physical and even a mathematical point of view, they actually are quite simple objects, but they are very difficult for us to imagine and visualize. And I think that's where a lot of the problem comes in. I mean, the basic idea goes like this. Anything with mass also has gravity. And the and the, the effect of that gravity on its surroundings is in, a, is in a sort of a warping of space-time, a bending of the space and time fabric around whatever that object is. The more massive an object is, the bigger its gravity well, the more it distorts space-time. And so if you keep adding more and more mass and you just keep doing the math until you get an infinite amount of mass, what ends up happening? Well, you get something called a singularity. And this is, up until recently, been just considered a mathematical point. This is an area in mathematics where you had it taken to an extreme a lot of mass that takes up zero volume and yet has infinite density. And this is a it is a mathematical point, no volume, zero volume. It takes up no space whatsoever, and yet it has an infinite amount of density. Now, these are very counterintuitive concepts. I agree, and that does, but it doesn't preclude the fact that these actually are pretty simple things—black holes. However, we have being a mathematical. There's a big difference between having a mathematical prediction of something and actually being able to observe it directly. And with ever since Einstein's time, we've had a lot of advancements in both telescopes, detectors, and everything else where we've been able to actually detect first the effect of a black hole on its surroundings. And then finally, we, it, we actually imaged a black hole directly just recently back in 2019. So these are very strange objects, granted, but they're actually pretty simple. They really can be characterized by having only three different properties. One of them is its mass, obviously. And the, whatever it is that made the black hole, the mass that goes into that singularity is defining what the black hole is. And that's called a Schwarzschild black hole. It's very simple. All of the mass is concentrated into the singularity. Remember, zero volume, infinite density. And the mass of how however much went into that black hole to create it in the first place, and we're going to talk about how black holes are created in just a sec, uh, but how much mass goes into it uh, determines its size. And, you know, a more massive object will have something uh, called, an ev- well, any black hole will have something called a bl- an event horizon. And this is a point as you approach a black hole beyond which you can't get back out unless you go tra- faster than the speed of light. And another prediction of Einstein's theory of relativity is that nothing can go faster than the speed of light. So effectively, you're trapped. You can't get back out once you pass this point called an event horizon. And the distance of that, the size of that horizon, the radius of that horizon is called the Schwarzschild radius. So the simplest black hole of all is a Schwarzschild black hole. Just has a singularity and it's sitting there, attracting everything towards it. (laughs) But if you add, there's another characteristic that black holes can have, and that is that it can be spinning. And if you take a Schwarzschild black hole and spin it, then you get something called a Kerr K E R R black hole, invented after the guy or named after the guy who described them mathematically. And if they do spin, which is really cool, then what happens is, as you is as I just said, the black hole is. Warping the space-time around it in a very severe way around a black hole, but if it spins, it's also twisting that space-time fabric around it, and it creates a torus, a kind of a donut shape of space-time around it. And this allows you to actually it bends space so much that it allows you to see what's behind the black hole. The black hole approach the the light ray approaches the black hole, gets caught up in that torus and actually bends all the way around it so that you can see it on the other side. That's an amazing characteristic. And sometimes you can see from NASA on a website or something, you can see these animations of a big circle going against a background of stars. And you can see this ring of the distorted light coming off around it. That is the torus spinning shaped black hole, bringing light from the back of the black hole to the front of the black hole. Now, it's still got a very distinct circle of blackness because that's the event horizon. Once light has gone in there, it can't get back out again. And the third and final thing that a black hole can have is a charge. You can imagine that it's traveling through space, spinning or not spinning, but as it goes through space, it's attracting charged particles that are sitting in sort of a photon sphere around the black hole. and. These are, it's usually a very small electric charge, but nonetheless, it's there. And it tends to happen when black holes bring in material from some nearby object, like a star or a cloud of uh, uh, gas or dust or whatever, It, it accelerates that, those particles to such an extent that they end up being charged and it can end up sticking to the black hole for a little bit, but it's usually a pretty negligible property of black holes. We don't really talk about them much. So a black hole has mass, it has spin, and it has a negligible charge. Now, the most common types of black holes that we probably see out there are called our Kerr black holes, the ones that are spinning. Those are probably the most um, common ones. That's what I mean when I say they're pretty simple objects. I mean, that's it. That's all there is to a black hole. But there's a lot more in terms of its effect on the universe that we have yet to talk about. So, what does a black hole look like? Now, I know that seems kind of a strange concept, but you if a, a black hole just sitting out in space, bending space-time, doesn't emit light by itself, it's black. Light can't come out. So, we can really only see a black hole when it's doing something to its surroundings, like sucking off all of the material from a nearby star or passing through a big gas, gas cloud in the center of a galaxy or something's falling into the black hole. Then we can see it because we see what we see a very bright accretion disk, which is this material going round and round in a circle. And that's where the stuff is whirling around. It's going very, very fast and it's being accelerated into into speeds that cause it to let off radiation and those radiation those radiation uh spectra can be seen it can be seen in x-rays optical infrared and radio waves so as this material falls into a black hole it's given off a lot of light in form of these various um these various wavelengths and so we can see that stuff with our telescopes and our intru- in our in our uh instruments but the um the most, the brightest part of a black hole is something called a relativistic jet. And so when a black hole is feeding on stars or gas or dust, the, this meal that it's eating produces jets of particles and radiation that are blasting out from the black hole's poles. This is the pole at which it's spinning, around which it's spinning. And it, this, this jet is, at, is, is being accelerated at near light speed and this relativistic jet this jet that comes off from material falling into a black hole is among the brightest objects in the universe they're associated with quasars they are quasars in in supermassive black holes and nothing is brighter than a relativistic jet coming out of a black hole and that is material that's being that's being accelerated as it falls in so we already have the event and then the next point at which you can see the the next Part of the anatomy of a black hole is the event horizon, which I've talked to, uh, I've already told you about. This is that point beyond which you, it's the point of no return, basically. You go past the event horizon, you can't come back out again, because you'd have to go faster than the speed of light to do it. The gravitational pull would be so strong once you've passed that point, that the acceleration needed to get out is too great, and you're trapped. You can't get out. And then, of course, finally, at the very center of a black hole is the singularity. So this, this business of having zero volume and infinite density uh, is actually a bit of a problem uh, for relativity because this, this is a point. There, the black hole as an object is such that when you reach a certain point, physics stops working. We no longer have a way to describe what goes on on the other side of an event horizon. And that's a problem. Whenever you have infinities in your theory, in this case, infinite density, that's a point at which your theory has stopped working. So I've always said that what we need here is something that works. uh, We need a description of nature that extends relativity beyond this point so that we can understand what's going on there. Because right now, once you've fallen into a black hole, we can't tell you what happens after that. The physics that we understand has stopped working. And that's a problem for relativity. It needs to be worked out. Um or refined in such a way that we that we can understand what goes on past the event horizon of a black hole. Okay, so I've tried to make the case that that black holes are simple. Um and I've given you a little bit of the labeled some of their parts, given you some of the anatomy of a black hole. But since the early 20th century, we have learned a lot about these black holes, the ones that are out there. For example, there are different sizes as i alluded to what the size of a black hole is based on what created it in the first place so there are three basic categories of sizes of black holes okay there are what are called stellar sized black holes and these are stars that are bigger than the sun they're between about 5 and 50 solar masses they they have they have masses up to 50 times greater than that of our sun um And what happens in the way that these are created in very large stars, Betelgeuse is such a star in the constellation of Orion. Rigel is another one of the the blue giant variety. These are blue and red supergiant stars, much more massive. They fall within the range of these 5 to 50 solar mass stars. And when they die, here's what's going to happen. The radiation pressure, as they burn all of their fuel, the pressure from fusion that's holding up the star will become less. And it will, the, the, all of that gas and, and stuff that's inside of the star will begin to collapse. It'll burn for a little while as it just sinks down, but overall, it's, it's ultimately going to die. It's running out of fuel. And so it collapses into a, what's called a core collapse, right? And, and it happens so quickly that the radiation pressure isn't able to hold it up any longer. All of that weight falls down and boom, you have this supernova explosion we've seen these in in things like the crab nebula that's a that's a that's a supernova remnant eta carina is also a supernova remnant but if the star is big enough like i said between 5 and 50 solar masses the core itself what's left behind will continue to collapse after the explosion the core will continue to collapse and it will do so with so much force that nothing can stop it. For smaller stars, uh, if if uh, w- the core will collapse and then be held up by electrons. If the, when the sun dies, for example, its core will collapse in such a way that the electrons in the atoms will be holding it up, and that's called electron degeneracy. And it makes what's called a white dwarf star. Something a little bit bigger than the sun, however, will. Collapse even further. The, elect- the electrons won't be able to hold up the mass any longer, and the, it crushes it even more so that the neutrons are holding it up. And that's called neutron degeneracy, and that's what makes a neutron star. But for really, really big stars, even neutrons are not enough to hold it up, and boom, it goes straight down into a uh, singularity, this point of infinite density and zero volume, and you have a black hole. And these black holes are what are known as stellar-sized black holes. These are about the size of a star, like Betelgeuse. There's also another kind of black hole. It's called a supermassive black hole. These are black holes that are millions of times more massive than the sun, billions of times in many cases, and they tend to reside in the center of galaxies. In fact, it's believed that almost every galaxy in the universe has at its center a supermassive black hole, millions of times more massive than the sun. It isn't totally clear, though, how these supermassive black holes form. Um, they, they could have come together from a bunch of stars that, that exploded into stellar-sized black holes and then, and then came together over time uh, to make bigger and bigger ones. And then when galaxies merge and they come together, they could, their black holes could merge and make larger super, or supermassive black holes. But there's a catch here. Astronomers have observed supermassive black holes in the early universe just a few hundred million years after the Big Bang. Now, that's not enough time for accretion of smaller black holes into bigger ones or galaxy mergers. The first galaxies are just still being formed during this time. So for them to already have supermassive black holes is a bit of a it's a bit of a mystery. How did those supermassive black holes millions of times greater than the sun get started so early in the universe? And observations are suggesting that there have been supermassive black holes in this period of the universe. The James Webb Space Telescope is going to come along later uh, here in just this year. It's going to start observing, among other things, the very first galaxies that ever formed and hopefully give us clues as to why these supermassive black holes can be there so early on. But there's another kind of black hole. There's in addition to stellar size and supermassive, there's this thing called intermediate. This <laughs> intermediate size black holes. And this is a relatively new category. And, pe- and astronomers have not seen very many of these black holes out there. But these are black holes that have between about 36,000 and 300,000 solar masses. They're not as big as a supermassive black hole and they're bigger than a stellar size black hole. So we have stellar size can go from uh, 5 to 50. Uh, intermediates can go from 36,000 to 300,000 and then supermassive to millions plus, right? So those are the three main categories of the black holes that we, that we know about, but there's some interesting types coming up here in just a minute that we've just learned about even more of. And that's, that's part of the, one of the things I'm most excited about. So people aren't really sure how many of these intermediate black holes there are. Let me just say that too. They're, it's a, it's, they're difficult to see because they don't shine. And so they're just getting gripped. They're just becoming um, active now with observations of these kinds of black holes. So we have, um, (laughs) in addition to those three, there's even more black holes. And this is relatively brand new research. There's this thing called primordial black holes. Usually you need the death of a five solar mass plus star to make a black hole. but with the advent of gravitational wave astronomy, we can actually see the gravitational waves of merging black holes now using detectors on Earth. And those observations are suggesting that some of the events involve black holes of only a solar mass or so. Now, wait a minute. Remember what I told you about how you need big, massive stars to make black holes. You need something that's able to overcome the pressure of those electrons. You need something that's be able to push past through those, those neutrons. So you can't do that without anything less than five or so solar masses. So how can you get a black hole with a, that weighs the same as the sun? Well, it isn't. Totally sure that these exist yet, these primordial black holes. But if they exist, astronomers think that they were created in the first second of the Big Bang. And here's what's really cool: they could have a wide range of sizes, from those intermediate black holes I was telling you about to microscopic black holes. These are much tinier than a grain of sand, kind of black holes. Now, if they exist, and this comes out of the the cosmology theories that are that are prevailing right now today but the calculations would show that are showing that the smallest black holes the microscopic ones would have long ago evaporated in the early universe so they would have gone away they would be their smallness would have contributed to the fact that they evaporated the smallest that we would see alive today from these primordial black holes would be about the size of an asteroid today so could you imagine a asteroid sized black hole? and larger up to the earth or even the the sun floating around the universe. They, would, they could still be around here today. And the thing of it is, though, because of their masses, or they're on order of about the sun and a little bit bigger, these black holes, if we could see them with gravitational waves, would be hard to distinguish from neutron stars. Remember, neutron stars are the highest density, most heavy star that can exist, before it becomes a black hole. So these primordial black holes would be on order and would have the same gravitational look, fingerprint, if you would, um, as a neutron star. So it'd be really hard to tell them apart if they exist. But if they do exist, then they also could help, and this is kind of a plus, help us understand and explain dark matter. Because it could be that these microscopic or or I should say these smaller substellar uh, sub-solar, I guess, black holes could a- accumulate in galaxies in halos, and these could be a replacement, or at least they a- they could be what we're seeing as dark matter in our observations. So, um, some people think these black holes they could, in fact, be dark matter. So that's one kind. That's what primordial black holes are. But there's another kind called micro black holes or quantum mechanical black holes. And now these are kind of a subset of the primordial black holes. They're really small, but their quantum mechanical effects play an important role here. They're generally much, much smaller than a stellar mass, probably around the asteroid level masses. And they would be, they would have been created in the high density environment of the very early universe, just after the big bang. It was a very weird place. And so in that weird place, you could get these microscopic black holes, these quantum mechanical black holes the reason I'm talking about this is because I don't know if you remember back in the day when they first turned on the large hadron collider back in, in Geneva, in Geneva, Switzerland, people were worried that that collider would have an environment very similar to the early universe and could create microscopic black holes, these quantum mechanical black holes and destroy life as we know it. <laughs> and it was, a, so I went to their website and just to kind of look up, up, some of the responses to this and um, there's a whole section on these quantum mechanical black holes on, on the CERN website. And they basically says that it's not possible under general relativity, but you can't, I mean, you can't have these kinds of quantum mechanical black holes. Black Relativity predicts the ones that we do know about, but not necessarily these, but some theories and they're quite speculative will allow for these existence of these quantum mechanical black holes. And, if they created them in collisions in the large Hadron Collider, then they said, and this was big caveats. If we could create them, which we can't, but if we could, then they would only last 10 to the minus 27 seconds. So before they totally disappeared. Now that's really, really small. Um, so there wouldn't be enough time for these teeny tiny black holes to start accreting matter and destroying the universe. So Uh, That was something that uh, I thought was pretty interesting. So quantum mechanical black holes probably are kind of iffy, but they are a type of black hole. And there's another kind of black holes, which are formed from neutron stars themselves. Remember, I keep going back to neutron stars because they're really interesting objects. These are the remnants of a star that after it has exploded, its core was not heavy enough to make it turn into a black hole, but it almost was it's so heavy that the neutrons in the atoms of the nucleus of the atoms of that star are holding it up they're touching they're they're it's not shining anymore it's not it's not um burning nuclear fuel it's just sitting there cooling over eons uh from the heat that was generated from its creation but because they're on the edge because neutron stars are on the edge of becoming a black hole can they accrete enough matter on their surface, say from maybe a nearby star that it's orbiting around and it's sucking off all the material off of that star and onto its surface. Is it possible to create a black hole from that? Is it possible for the neutron star to suck enough material from its surroundings onto its surface in such a way that now the neutrons can't hold it up any longer and boom, it goes right down into a black hole? is that possible? And the answer is yes, it is possible, but we don't know if we can see that Um, because we need, this is where gravitational wave astronomy comes in handy. We want to observe, our astronomers want to observe a heck of a lot more neutron star mergers to know if this is possible. For example, if you take two neutron stars and they're orbiting and they're falling in towards each other and they collide, Chances are high that that will create a black hole. We need to see more of those kinds of observations to know if this possible. If this is possible, but they're looking for it, so that's another kind of black hole that could exist. Now, I was at a star party. Um, I don't know. I guess it was before COVID, so it would have been a couple of years ago now. And I got to ask this really cool question: Is it possible to have a black hole? Created from a star collapse that does not explode? Is it possible for a star, when it begins its collapse, to go straight into a black hole and not explode? And like I said, most massive stars die in these core collapse supernovae that create a black hole when it's left behind. But astronomers have seen evidence of stars above 27 solar masses they might end up as black holes without a supernova. There was one called N6946-BH1. You can tell the BH1 was black hole one. Um, and it was the first star that was ever observed turning directly into a black hole. It turned out it was 25 solar masses in size, and it was 22 million light years away. Now, the, the error bars on the masses are plus or minus enough that, they, that when, when you do the math... Anything over 25 solar masses could go straight into a black hole without blowing up. What astronomers saw when they looked at at uh, N6946BH1 was they saw a brightening of the star that was similar to a core collapse. They were thinking they were about to watch a core collapse supernova. But then it just faded away. No explosion. Now the study suggests that, that did this observation that stars anywhere from nine to about 23 to 27 solar masses are the ones with core collapse supernovae, while those that are larger than that go straight to black holes. So it's possible. It's possible that you can have a star blow up, or I'm sorry, you could have a star just collapse, just disappear straight into a black hole without a supernova at all. So. There's a lot of very exciting new information on black holes that I wanted to share with you. And the thing to watch for, folks, is going to be gravitational wave astronomy. We now have the ability, using the LIGO Laser Interferometer Gravitational Observatory, which has several stations across the Earth, detect when two heavy things collide into each other, what they do is they send ripples, like it, like dropping a rock in a pond. It is exactly analogous to that. When two black holes merge together to make a larger black hole, the resulting merger sends ripples out, characteristic ripples that we can see based on the predictions of general relativity on these gravitational wave detectors. They can also see, as, they, as the detectors get better, neutron stars that also collide. And they've only seen one or two neutron star collisions so far. They're calling them mergers, not collisions. And uh, so there needs to be a lot more data on this question of whether neutron stars can, can, can merge to become black holes or not. And whether or not a neutron star can also accrete enough material to turn it into a black hole. These are all really new questions that are just starting to become possible to answer with gravitational wave astronomy. So... Exciting times. And in the far future, like in the 2030s, uh, ESA, the European Space Agency, is planning on launching LISA, the Laser Interferometer Space Antenna. And this will allow for supermassive black holes to be seen, their mergers, galaxy collisions, they're going. It's going to consist of three detectors spaced 50,000 kilometers apart in space in the, into a giant triangle, and they'll be able to move these, these three disks around uh, to different parts of the sky to detect gravitational waves. And for reasons that I really don't fully understand myself, the range of black holes that can be detected or black hole mergers that can be detected depends a lot on the size of the interferometer itself. So the ones that we have on earth right now can really only see neutron stars up to, you know, uh, 50 solar mass black holes. It can't see the larger black holes, the intermediate size black holes and the supermassive black holes. So we need Lisa to be able to see those. Not quite sure why, but that's what you know. That's the range of black holes. It's kind of like having a mirror that you know uh, can only reflect certain wavelengths. Like gold tends to reflect infrared really a lot better than aluminum does. Uh, it'll reflect it, but not you nowhere near as well. So, so I think it's kind of like that. These these detectors and the and the size and the range of uh, the distance apart from each other have a lot to say about what kind of black hole you can see which I guess makes sense because, you know, when you merge two black holes together, you get a ripple effect that has both an amplitude and a wavelength. So it's very analogous to the light in the sense that some detectors just aren't going to be able to see it Two, I could easily imagine detectors very close together, missing a really, really long wavelength signal. So I, I you know, I think it must be something like that. I'm not totally sure, but that's what I would say. So, Black holes. I'll have a lot more to say about that in the future, but uh, I thought (laughs) thought we'd visit it and take a quick guided tour of some of the different kinds of black holes that are out there. So tell me what you think. You got any ideas? Did I miss anything? Did I say anything that confused you? Well, send me an email. SpaceJunkPodcast at DeepAstronomy.com I still want to hear from you. I still want you to contact me and let me know with your questions and, and your ideas. You're listening to Space Junk Podcast. Okay, so I got into this hobby way back when the dinosaurs roamed the Earth. And what one had to do uh, when one wanted to image things through a telescope, which by the way used film, none of these newfangled digital cameras, one had to locate the object focus the object with the camera in place which usually meant stealing a little bit of the light from the optical path off to the side so I could look at a star and focus and everything else and get my camera all set up but then I had to take long exposures on order of minutes and mm-hmm. I had to sit there with my little knobs on the equatorial mount and gradually correct my drive clock drive as it tracked the sky that was not Auto guiding. <laughs> and the subject of today's segment is auto guiding because nowadays, what you can do, harumph, harumph, is you can just start up your computer, harumph, harumph, and then just tell your computer what you want to look at an image and off it goes and it tracks it automatically. So, auto guiding. Yeah.
1: Amazing wow. technology.
0: It is probably the one thing that gets beginners great images uh, than anything else I've seen. So let's talk about auto guiding, Dustin. What is it, and what do you need to guide automatically?
1: Yeah. So it's exactly that, you know, and I've seen the pictures of people sitting there looking through an eyepiece with, um, <laughs> you know, trying trying to watch the star if it moves and put it back on track with the hand controller. And I can't imagine that process for a long exposure on film. Oh, uh, yeah. But I know that's how it used to be done, which is pretty incredible. And you think about it, that people mm. were that patient and that committed to to sit there and do that all night in the cold. Uh, that's that's pretty incredible. But now what's done is you know this whole thing so you're going to have two cameras on your system you're going to have your imaging camera your primary camera which is actually going to be collecting the light that you're going to keep it's the light that's going to be ultimately your final image and then you have a second camera and that can be oriented a couple different ways you know whether it's through what's called an off-axis guider which picks off a tiny amount of the light coming through the telescope kicks it off to the second camera or You know, a second telescope, even like a really small one called a guide scope um, that sits on top of the other one or to the side of the other one and rides along on the mount to make corrections for it. And so this second camera's only job is to basically make a grid of the sky using its pixels. And then it's going to look at those stars that come through and those stars become plotted across that grid. Right. So that it knows exactly where they are in relation to whatever pixel um, number that it's on. And then if the wind blows or anything happens, there's, you know, periodic error in the mount or just a tracking issue. Anything happens and it was supposed to be on pixel 293, but it jumped and now it's on 287. It knows I need to get that pixel as quickly as possible, or that star back to pixel two ninety three as quickly as possible, or there's going to be a star trail in the image. And that's all it's doing is plotting out what the image is, what it's supposed to be, and then riding along, taking rapid exposures. You know, somewhere generally between a second and six seconds, and um, you know, just watching those stars. And if anything moves, it takes control of the mount and moves it back so that the star so that the image the final image is sharp and doesn't have the stars jumping around in it
0: so with a lot of um with a lot of auto guiders then there's a there's a time in which you can respond and the it won't affect the image right there's kind of a a delay that if you see a a star going off of a pixel you can move it back and it really won't show up in the image is that true
1: yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you're you're talking about very long exposure. So that light is coming in and let's say that you're doing, you know, a 5-minute exposure, right? 300 seconds. And for a fraction of a second, you know, that star jumped, but then it's back immediately. I mean, you you think about how long that that light had to hit those other pixels and to illuminate illuminate them and fill those pixels wells with Uh, photons, you know, it's not very long, so it's not going to be very bright on those pixels at all. But the pixels that it's sitting on for the other 300 seconds are going to be fully illuminated. And you're not, you know, the the contrast between the two is going to be such that you just can't tell that it ever happened. Now, if it sits there a long time and it can build up light in those pixels, then you're going to see a star trail. You're going to see that movement but the whole goal is to make sure that you know you don't have that movement in the first place but the guider is there to when those things happen with whatever happens you know you can um, get it back as quickly as possible so that you know it's not showing up in your image in any significant way okay so
0: auto guiding is probably the the ad- one of the advances in the hobby that just makes your life just gloriously easier because when you're when you're right. trying to image because it's handling a lot of this for you and some things that would cause you to need an auto guider are polar alignment may not be perfect, uh, in which case yeah. you're going to always have some kind of error in your tracking. Uh, you may mm-hmm. have some some weather issues, like Dustin said, that would cause it. And I don't care how much you spend on a mount, it's still going to have a little bit of error in it, even if it's perfectly polar aligned. So you're going to want to have, uh, even in some of the best mounts you can buy, a system that can correct for whatever inaccuracies it may have so and as you mentioned at the beginning of this there were there's two ways in which you can grab the light to find out where the telescope is pointing one of them used a guide scope which is a completely separate optical telescope different from where the camera is sitting and there's a, an off-axis system that grabs a little piece of the starlight that's in the frame of the of the image you're going to take with the camera and then guides on that is there a better it was one way better than the other is off axis guiding better than having a guide scope or does it matter
1: so there's there's advantages to both um, the guide scope is certainly easier um, in getting started right because you don't you don't have to consider anything it's its own independent system it's a, a tiny telescope with a separate camera and you focus it using that little telescope independently of the main system. So when you make adjustments there, it in no way affects the primary system. You just uh, put it on top, let it go for the ride and it takes over. The problem with it is one, the the focal length is not going to be the same as the main system. So if you're shooting at 2000 millimeters, but you're guiding at 100 millimeters, obviously you're guiding at a much wider field than mm. your primary image imaging scope is taking the photo and so the jumps in the main image might look you know much more severe than they do to the camera that's actually taking control of the guiding because it can't see that movement on the scale that the primary imaging camera does um so that's that's one of the disadvantages the one of the disadvantages is yeah that you 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 can't get the focal lengths most of the time to be identical Um, The other disadvantage is that they're not going to be pointed the same exact place, which is called cone error, Um, you know, or they might flex. One might move and the other might not. And then that will show up in the image, right? So if the, the primary imaging camera moves then you're going to see that in your image and the, the guide camera is never going to know what happened. If the guide camera moves, it's going to try to correct that. But the primary image, ca- imaging camera didn't need any correction. It was flexing from the you know the guide camera. So because it's not all the same system, they don't see the same exact movement. And that can be a problem as well. So what people have done is they've they've uh, created off-axis guiders, which is a little prism that goes in the imaging train of the main system. So before, after the focuser, but before the filter wheel in the camera or just the camera itself, and it just picks off a tiny amount of light that wasn't going to hit the sensor anyway. So it's not casting a shadow on the sensor. And, um, you know, it pulls it up to the second camera at a 90 degree angle from the, uh, the imaging camera. So the camera, the light is coming straight out of the back of the telescope or the side if it's a Newtonian. And then this little thing is kicking this light up to the second camera, which again has to be focused by moving it in or out. Um, and, you know, now you're imaging off the same exact light, which is much better in, in basically every single way. The only problem with this is one, it's harder to set up because, you know, you're Um, you've got to put in the main imaging train and now adjustments you make as far as like, how many spacers do I use? All of that affects how far away the, um, the primary camera is because it's going in the imaging train of the main system. So you're, you're adjusting your back focus. The second thing is that this, the primary camera and the, uh, the guide camera have to be equidistant you know, so that they can from, for the back focus, that they can both be in focus at the same time, right? That light has to hit both of them in focus. You can't have one in focus and the other not. They both have to be in focus. So it it becomes a challenge of making sure all your adapters are correct. And that's something that generally people come to us for so that we can calculate it because it's a really easy thing to mess up. Um, the, the last thing is that, Remember, the other, the other telescope, when we're talking about guide scopes, is getting a full complete image through a second telescope that's very wide field. So you have tons of stars to choose from. If you're using an OAG, off-axis guider, on a long focal length system, you have a really small prism that, make, that makes that light do the 90 degree turn. But instead of having an, an entire field, remember we said we're just using a tiny fraction of the light that's coming through the telescope. That means it's a tiny fraction of the number of stars that you can get. So if you're using a long focal length system, you might be in an area of sky that doesn't have a lot of stars to choose from. And now you just cut down the the field size to, you know, a 20th of what it would have been even with few stars. And so you might not have a star in your imaging field of view to guide from. So you're going to have to do longer exposures to find one, or you're going to have to tilt the camera around to find one, which now changes your, um, you know, your framing of the target and so it's not something that happens often. J- almost every time, I'd say 99 times out of 100, you're going to find a guide star in your first try with an OAG. But it is something at long focal lengths to be aware of, that there are certain parts of the sky that it can become a challenge.
0: I've uh, A lot of professional astronomers tend to use the uh, off-axis guiding system just because mm-hmm. of the accuracy and the fact that they have right. uh, more sophisticated equipment. Uh, what about price is one uh cheaper than the other or are they both cost about the same a guide scope a guiding system with a with a uh, uh, autocorrector yeah, on say it versus
1: really nice guide scopes are typically cheaper less expensive than really nice off-axis guiding systems um but it's not a drastic difference you know it's not like the o- the OAGs are going to cost you thousands of dollars that's not the case at all so i'd say they're, they're pretty comparable but you know the the check mark probably goes to um, not only for simplicity, but for cost, to you know the um, the guide scope on that front. You know the re- the real reason you go to OAG is because you want the best images possible, and you want to eliminate flexure. You want to eliminate any possibility of the cone error or anything like that, and you just want to guide off the exact same light that the primary camera is taking images from. But some of that could be mitigated, could it not, if you just picked a
0: focal length of your guide telescope to be longer than your um up than your imaging system.
1: You mean a lot of this could be
0: Sometimes some it's of the not cone error can be though. reduced.
1: Like you wouldn't want to put, you know, a really huge telescope as a guide scope on top of a really small telescope as a primary imaging scope um to ride along. You know, like okay. just just to give you, you know, uh, thought experiment here like what if we're trying to do exactly what you said we want to put a really long focal length for guiding on top of you know a radian 61 a tiny you know telescope tiny (laughs) refractor and you're going to use a 14 inch edge hd to guide from you know it just doesn't make any sense it wouldn't work it's just not practical so while it would work for guiding and you'd probably get phenomenal guiding um (laughs) it's not practical okay (laughs) <laughs> All right.
0: Well, I guess, I'm, yeah, I have this. This is my guide scope. Yeah. yeah like, attach,
1: attach the James Webb telescope to the Hubble and just yeah. use the James Webb for guiding.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I get it. It's overkill. Yeah. It's just not practical. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. But either system makes your life one hell of a lot easier. So it's definitely worth looking into getting them and yeah. you can put them, I think on most this could be an addition to almost any any system you end up imaging with. You just want to uh, and and they you know you just want to plug it into what you've got and it will go uh, and be recognized by most uh, guiding and imaging software. The things that control your cameras and telescopes uh, generally have capability to handle auto guiding as well. so they'll take the input from that and uh, just make your life wondrous. Just go ahead and turn it on, say, I want to image the Orion Nebula. go inside, have a cup of tea. And right. let it, let it all handle it from there.
1: It's uh, yeah, that's, absolutely.
0: That's how you image. I, I mean, I, you you've you told me many times, you just set it up and go to bed, <laughs> wake up the next morning and see what you got. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I,
1: uh, I, I knew that it wouldn't be again, talking about it being practical. I, I didn't think it would work for me once we, we bought OPT to, still be able to, because I was losing a lot of nights just (laughs) saying, I'm not going to sleep at all this week because it's clear all week. Um, That worked when I didn't have responsibilities. (laughs) (laughs) But now uh, I knew it wasn't practical. So I have my telescope completely automated to where I log in. I tell it what I'm going to go after for the night. I plan the imaging run. And then, you know, it's it's, uh, several hundred miles when I'm in San Diego. When I'm not, it can be thousands of miles away. And uh, I still run it from wherever I am in the world, and it makes it, it makes imaging life easy, but. Um, it is still nice to get out there and like be under the stars with the telescope though i miss that when i can't do it you know yeah me too i like doing that as well
0: well auto guiding is not a uh, complete remote uh, observing robotic setup but it is a step in that direction one more thing that one would need once an once a observing run has been started to keep your images in the highest quality that you can get so
1: look into these auto guiding systems you'll be glad you did yeah I oh I yeah promise. absolutely it does make life easy and you don't have to be that person anymore looking the eyepiece and trying to guide with your hand controller. You <laughs> That's don't have to right, be Tony. Dude. That's right. You don't, right, don't, you have, don't to have to be, be me. And
0: and, and the, the risk of dinosaur
1: attacks is reduced these days as well. So you don't have to worry about being... The dinosaurs dinosaur. would have had a better outcome had they been more committed to astronomy and <laughs> you modern think so? technology. That's- that that's a very good point, especially
0: if they had studied near Earth objects a little bit better than they yeah.
1: did. <laughs> yeah, their their space situational, situational awareness was not very was, advanced.
0: Was not the best, and they paid the, yeah. price. <laughs> <laughs> they paid the price. Poor dinosaurs. All right, guys. This is Space Junk Podcast. So I talked a lot about black holes earlier in this episode. And one of the things I mentioned was that the black holes that created in that were created in the early universe, the, the evidence and the suggestions from the observations that there may be supermassive black holes at the beginning of the early universe is a is a is a conundrum. You know, how how can that be possible when there hasn't been enough time for smaller black holes to merge together into larger black holes to create supermassive ones? Well, The James Webb Space Telescope was designed and launched, among a great many other things, to look at that issue. It is going to be able to give us information and uh, uh, observations of of a time in the universe where just a few hundred thousand to a few million years, 100 million years after the Big Bang. The early universe has been inaccessible to us because telescopes have not had the right combination of wavelength sensitivity and aperture to be able to see that far back in time. Hubble with its 2.4 meter mirror and the fact that it is infrared doesn't have the resolution capability to see that far back in the early universe. The Webb Space Telescope will see those things. And we'll see, not among the first stars and galaxies in the universe, but the first stars and galaxies in the universe. So we're going to get a lot of answers about how many supermassive black holes there are in the early universe, their various size ranges and distributions, all of these things we're going to be able to get a a handle on using observations from this amazing telescope. Well, I just wanted to update you. We know that it launched. We know that it deployed. I mean, I have to be honest with you when I say... I'm amazed. (laughs) I was skeptical. All of that was going to come together, but it did. And now everybody's sighing a big sigh of relief. And so now the commissioning process is is underway. It's at L2. It's a million miles away from us right now, orbiting past the orbit of of the moon, and it's getting all of its instruments ready. And just this week, they started aligning the telescope. The Webb team members saw the very first photons of starlight that traveled through the entire telescope and were detected by the NearCam, the near-infrared camera on board. This milestone marks the first of many steps to capture images that are at first unfocused and to slowly fine-tune them and get the telescope perfectly in focus. So just this week, the James Webb Space Telescope took its first Recorded its first photons from the Near Cam instrument. Over the next few months, they're going to keep doing this with the various other instruments. You got, you've got Near Spec, the spectrometer on board, the Fine Guidance Sensor. All of these things are going to be worked out over the coming months, and they should start getting the first science instruments or the first science images sometime this summer, around July or August timeframe. So it's moving along, and our knowledge of black holes will hopefully be improved a lot from this observatory. All right, well, that is it for this episode, Space Fans. Thank you so very much for downloading and listening to this podcast. It means a lot to both Dustin and I. And on behalf of Dustin Gibson, my name is Tony Darnell. Thank you so very much again for listening. And as always